We are in the book of Proverbs again, and today's topic is anger. Anger is one of those things that I think most of us probably do not see ourselves as a person of anger. But the Bible has a very different picture for us about this. It actually says that everyone struggles with anger, whether we realize it or not. When I was in my first ministry, uh, full-time ministry, after uh, being in Amherst, Massachusetts, I moved to Chicago. And I was young. I was 26 years old, recently married, and moved there, new area, new marriage, new life. And I'd gone into a ministry, and I didn't know anything about the people or anything like that. But what I did have was my own agenda. Um, I wanted certain things to happen, and I wanted it to happen in my time as soon as possible. So I remember, um, in particular, after about being a month there, I was called into a meeting, and it was a meeting with a group of, it was a very small ministry, and there were about um, six or seven people and the senior pastor of my church, who was my boss. And basically, it was for everyone to say all the things that I was doing wrong. I remember I'm 26, and, and so there was in particular one leader of this group of people, and he was, he was very angry, actually, and he had accused me of not caring for different people. And so what he did was he went around to each person, and he polled each person and said, you know, did Sam do this to you? And, um, and I was sitting there, and I was listening to this, and as he was uh, talking, and as he was trying to get people to sort of, sort of say, and this is what he has done, by the time it got to me, and the pastor, my pastor asked me and said, do you have any response? Like, what if these people decide to leave? Is that okay? And my answer was three words. It was, so be it. <laughs> and so it's funny because uh, it's not funny, but it is funny. It's, so all those people left. And I had this idea that, well, good riddance. You know, I, I'm, I'm the one who's the pastor, and I had this plan of, you know, preaching Christ, and, and all these people were just angry people. But this friend of mine who did stay and eventually ended up being this one person who really was a sort of my right-hand person throughout my time in Chicago. He came up to me and he said, you know, I just remember those three words. And he kept on saying it to me throughout the time, so be it. And he would use it at every single conversation I would have with him as a joke. Oh, yeah, so be it. And I began to realize, actually reflecting back at that time, a few things about myself. One is that I was pretty arrogant, actually. There was a lot of, okay, I'm going to change the world mentality. And I do think Sometimes when you just graduate from seminary and you're young and you have this, I'm going to change everything and I'm going to do it as fast as I can in my way. So there is that. There's the pride and arrogance. But the second thing was anger. You know, this man who was saying those things, he had red face, he was yelling, and he was angry. It was very obvious to everyone. I wasn't yelling and I didn't say much. But in those three words, there was a lot being said. And you know what it was? It was anger. 
it was as red-faced as that man. And the people around it saw it. In fact, my friend, he joked about it, but he really was essentially saying, Ooh, when you said that, I was scared. That's what he said to me. And I was thinking, wait, you're not scared by the guy who's yelling, but you're scared by me? who Because he, he felt as though I was so angry. And I realized that anger is not just about what we see, but it's what's in our hearts. And that's a problem that occurs all throughout, as scripture shows us. Author and counselor David Powelson puts it this way. In the way we do anger, some of us explode, some of us simmer, some of us seem dormant, but all of us experience anger. And if we don't, it's because we've anesthetized ourselves or detached. We express anger in all sorts of different ways, but if we're really honest with ourselves, all of us struggle with anger to some extent. And the Bible tells us that there is hope for us who struggle with anger. And what we're going to do is look at three ways in, in Proverbs and in the rest of the Bible that sort of shows us what we must do to give us this hope. First, we have to accept that we are angry. Two, also. Second, we have to acknowledge the power of anger. And then third, we have to admit that we are angry ultimately at God. So first, accept that you are angry too. I'm going to begin to look at this idea by looking at James in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Notice that James doesn't ask if we ever have quarrels and fights. He assumes you have fights and quarrels, and I think that's a right assumption. Every human being has a conflict, and we express it in different ways, but it's there. It's the way in which we express our anger. And the problem is that when we evaluate anger in others, we have a certain picture of what anger looks like. Anger has bulging veins. Anger throws things. Anger has curse words. Anger screams and yells. Anger is red-faced, rageful, violent, out of control. We have words and phrases like fly off the handle, you know, to describe what it looks like to be an angry person. And because perhaps you look at yourself and you don't see yourself like that, although perhaps if you actually took a mirror every time you walked around and you had a conflict, you actually might see you look more angry than you realized. Or if you're able to hear yourself on a recording, you might hear that you raise your voice much louder than you assume you have. And that's, that's one of the problems with self-evaluation is it's really hard to do it for ourselves. We need someone else. We actually need even a historical record or some sort of medium by which we can hear ourselves or see ourselves. But we don't have that. And so therefore we think, I'm naturally not an angry person. I'm okay. Some evaluate their anger by comparing themselves to others. I'm not angry like that person over there. Or self-justification. Well, if you only knew what so-and-so did to me, 
then you would also be angry just like me. So we justify ourselves. Deflection. That's not anger. I'm just a little bothered. I'm just frustrated. So we use euphemisms to describe anger. I'm exasperated, but I'm not angry. Because using the word angry, it just sounds angry. Sounds sinful. Sounds bad. Sounds out of control. But deep down, if we're giving the silent treatment, if we're inwardly seething, uh, if we are resigned, if we've cut someone off, well, that probably means you're an angry person. You just don't want to admit you're angry. So if you have quarrels, and even if no one sees your heart, we have anger in our hearts. And until we accept that we too are angry, we'll actually never have the hope of overcoming anger. You won't experience freedom from anger until you realize that you're imprisoned by anger. So we must accept that we are angry too. Second, we need to acknowledge the power of anger. We have to see that there are these characteristics that are revealed throughout our daily lives that show us that actually we struggle with anger. We really do. And we have to recognize that it's sometimes very uncontrollable. We can't help it. And no matter how much self-discipline we try or anger management classes we go to, it just seems to boil over and bubble over and burst out. And so we're going to look at a few characteristics that describe this power of anger. First, anger is very quick. Last week I shared about how often our lack of discernment with our words so often leads to terrible consequences. And people say things without thinking and it leads to troubles and problems and difficulties. And even wars are started from such things. We are far too quick with words. Those words, when we're far too quick with words, leads to quick anger. And when anger is fast, it usually harms. Speed kills. And you know those test dummies that are often used in modeling car accidents to evaluate the safety of a car? Well, if you have a wall that's an immovable object and you have this car going at a certain speed, if they're going very slow, the damage on that test dummy is going to be not so bad. But we know this, it's logical that the faster the car is traveling to hit that wall, the more damage on that dummy. I think of anger similarly. When it comes to sin, we're worse than dummies. And the faster we release our anger, the more damage occurs not only to others, but to ourselves. And the quicker we look at and, and allow that to be unleashed on people, just the devastation around us. Proverbs really tries to hammer this point home. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 14.21, Proverbs 14.29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16.32, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And then Proverbs fifteen eighteen, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, 
but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Four verses, four Proverbs, all describing how quick anger leads to real problems and slow anger leads to, it's a wisdom. It's, it's mindful of the fact that it actually is wise to live this way. Why is speedy anger so destructive? Because at the core of that person, it assumes rightness. It is the self-centered person is unwilling to take responsibility over his or her actions and always believes he's right. And because of that, regardless of the devastating impact it has on different people around them, loved ones, friends, family, whomever, they just don't think about it. They act upon their emotions in the moment and that causes great harm and they don't really care that much about that harm or they haven't really weighed the cost of that type of anger. A great example of this is found in Genesis chapter 39 with the story of Joseph in Potiphar's house. You know the story. Joseph was given this role by Potiphar and he was a slave, first of all. Joseph was taken as a slave, taken into captivity, put into Potiphar's house. And because of his obvious faithfulness and his integrity and his willingness to do whatever he could to really stand above the rest, he didn't act politically. He didn't do things on the basis of what will this get for me? He just honored God. And by doing so, Potiphar saw that and said, I want Joseph to be the head over my household. And it, the scripture says he didn't withhold anything from Joseph. He had uh, just care over everything. So after who knows how long, years of Joseph's faithfulness without, at least scripture doesn't show any instance of Joseph ever undermining or failing Potiphar's uh, response, the responsibility that Potiphar had given to him, you would think that should have built up a lot of measure of trust. But Genesis 39, 19 tells us what happens. And it came to pass when his master, Potiphar, heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, after this manner did your servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. So what happened? And I think some of you know the story is that Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of trying, of trying to sexually assault her, when in reality, it was Potiphar's wife who's trying to seduce Joseph. And Joseph constantly said, you know, my master, your husband, has not withheld anything from me. Far be it from me if I should in any way undermine that type of trust. And ultimately, he was doing this because he wanted to honor the Lord. And so he wanted to protect Potiphar, protect Potiphar's wife, protect the household. What did it get Joseph? He was falsely accused of this crime. And in an instant, not even Potiphar not even considering the years of faithfulness, in a moment, takes Joseph, throws him into prison. And that's an injustice. I mean, consider all that Joseph had been through already. And to now, having been faithful and thrown into prison, that's a grave injustice. Now, Potiphar, what he failed to do is, one, to see and to really consider, well, knowing Joseph's history, I should be asking some questions. But you know what was even a, 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 perhaps an equal or even greater tragedy is 
he didn't even understand his wife. I mean, it's obvious from this instant that his wife was not a woman of faithfulness. And there must have been some serious issues in their marriage already. But when you're angry, nothing matters. There's no sense of what is logical, what has happened in the past, of trying to come to a, a conclusion based on some sort of rational thinking or even processing things well. It's just, what this is what I feel, and so I'm going to act upon it. That is anger. When it's hasty, it just happens, and you can't do anything about it. And so we see from Proverbs in James 1.19 that there is so much wisdom in being slow to anger. But again, wisdom is that perspective to see beyond the moment. Foolishness is to always act on the moment and to fail to see the future and to see perspective. So by nature, Potiphar was foolish, not wise, because he just couldn't imagine what the future held. And he couldn't even think, oh, let me think about the consequences to Joseph and to my family. And obviously, it's probably, we don't know about this from scripture, but I'm assuming that he didn't have a good life, Potiphar, with his wife, because it's already shown what she was like. And so there's not a single consideration of anything other than what he feels or experiences in the moment. That's anger. Anger always acts in the moment. It's hasty. It's speedy. It doesn't really take into account anything other than oneself. Secondly is that anger is proud. Listen to Proverbs 29, 22 to 23. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. There is such a strong link between anger and uh, pride. The story that I shared actually is one of, I actually think both this gentleman and myself were proud and both of us were angry. And it was very evident. And it actually led to this ministry crumbling. So there is a, a lot to be said of that. But it's not just that one story. We see it in the Bible. You know, it actually is a, a, a very illustrative story for this is the story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, Moses says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. God had given both of them um, everything, and they were to come and worship him. And the way they worshiped him was to offer the first fruit of their produce or their sheep. And for Abel, he comes to the Lord, and you have to understand, and I think for some of you who do gardening or something like that, when you plant and all the, you know, you're watering and you're waiting and you're waiting for the harvest, and when the first one comes, you're so excited to eat that first one. It's usually delicious and usually. And uh, you eat it, and it's, it's just your best. Well, for Abel, it's what he does. He gives God his first fruit. But for Cain, it probably wasn't. Maybe it was his second. Maybe it was his fifth. Maybe it was his tenth fruit. It was, God, I'll, I'll give it to you as well. And so he gives it. And so God sees the heart. He doesn't care about any actual sacrifice. He's not looking at the fruit and thinking, wow, I really want to eat that, that carrot. 
I really want to eat that, you know, lamb chop over there. And he doesn't care about that. But what he does see is, oh, is this person giving of their heart or are they being compelled to and therefore they're giving it? To illustrate that, um, you know, there's some traditions have it where when a child, they go through life, they get their first job and they give their paycheck to their parent. I'm sort of in this phase of my life, right? Now, I'm not expecting this at all. But um, if a child says, as they're an adult, they get a job and they take their paycheck and they say, mom, dad, I just want you to know that you know, I'm so thankful that of all you've done for me, and I know that you have raised me, you've cared for me, you've provided for me, and this is nothing, but it's just a small symbol of my heart to you and for you, and so therefore here, I want, I want to give this to you. I think most parents would be more, much more than money or anything. They're just so thankful that for that person's heart, for your child's heart. Versus, uh, let's say you as parents say, you know, child, m my friends say that their children always give their paycheck, their first one, to the parents. So I just want you to know, I expect that from you. And, and you're telling them they're a two-year-old child. Hey, when you're a you know, 22 year old and you get your first job, you better give me your paycheck. So by the time they get to their 22, 23 years old, they get a job. They say, here, mom, dad, I, I, I owe this to you. Like, here it is. Is that the same? I mean, which is better? Obviously a very poor illustration comparatively, but I think you can understand the distinctive difference between one person who out of the outflow of the joy of their heart gives generously because of thanksgiving versus the other person out of obligation says, oh, I guess I have to do this. And so when God accepts Abel's offering because he looks at his heart and says, wow, you really love me versus Cain who says, ah, I got to do this. So here, here, God, it says a lot about what Cain believes who God is. And so when God says, I don't accept that offering, look at Cain's response. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Two things, one, anger, second, self-pity, face falling. So anger, self-pity, those two go hand in hand so often. If you see a child that's feeling sorry for himself because what about me, that mentality? What about me? if that self-pitying is flowing from an angry heart. And it's not just a child, it's us. We get passed over from promotions. One person gets praised, the other person doesn't. We, one person gets invited to a party, the other person doesn't. We get angry at the person and then we fall, feel sorry for ourselves. Or we feel sorry for ourselves and then we get angry at the person. And this combo flows from a heart of pride. The heart that says, I deserve to be invited. I deserve this promotion. I deserve praise. I deserve because I am better. If you're passed over on an athletic team, on a sports team, and you're not starting, you're, you're not starting on your basketball team, you're not starting on your baseball team or soccer team. And the immediate instinct of parents and child, and by the way, I've been there, I know this, is, oh, my child is definitely better than that starter she should be starting. He should be starting. Oh, it's because he's the coach's son. 
That's why they're starting. That's called pride. And what happens with pride? We feel slighted. Then we get angry. Then we feel self-pity. Woe is me. Then we think everyone's against us. And it goes to more anger. So anger, pride, self-pity, all of this, recognize it comes from a sinful heart. And we all struggle with it. All of us do. And it just expresses, it might not come out seething and raging and throwing things. But in our hearts, there's a contempt. And it's there. And a bitterness starts growing. We have to realize that. Anger is also contagious. Listen to Proverbs 22, 24 to 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. I don't know if we realize how contagious anger is. Proverbs here tells us, do not, it's so strict. Do not befriend the angry. And again, it's not to say that we shouldn't be friends with angry people ever, 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 because that might mean we can never have any friends. But what it does mean is that when you are amongst people and there's anger in the midst, we have to protect ourselves from that. We have to realize that like, just like some of you are protecting yourselves through vaccines from COVID or masks, you're protecting your health. Well, there's a greater contagion. It's called anger. And it's much more insidious and much more contagious than Omicron. And if you go into a situation where someone is always angry or the environment is angry or the world is angry and you're not guarding your heart against that, then you will become angry too. And you should never be surprised that that happens so readily, so quickly. Middle school teacher and writer, Luke Holm, tells the story of a, a, one student he had named Kim. She wore the same sweatshirt to school every day. It was covered with stains on it. And she was poor. She didn't have much. And as children are oft uh, doing to such kids, she was teased mercilessly for her appearance. I mean, that in and of itself is tragic. The fact that we care that much about what someone wears, you know, really, to like degrade someone. But one day as the student got off, students got off the bus, they chased Kim to her home. They threw name, called her names, threw rocks at her. Everyone joined in. And there was a boy who usually walked home alone after getting off the bus. Even he joined in. Some of these kids were calling her names, but they didn't even know why. They were just following the crowd. And so no one cared that they were hearing this little girl's cries for help. They threw rocks without hesitation, despite the obvious harm that was going to uh, come against her, just because of how she dressed. So finally, she arrived at, ran to her house. Her grandmother comes out yelling at the kids as they all flee. There was only one boy who remained. Uh, it was the boy who walked alone. And he stood there, and he wanted to apologize. He wanted to cry. He didn't even know how he got there in the first place. He just knew that there were a bunch of kids who were angry, throwing rocks, yelling, screaming, calling someone a name, and he joined in without even realizing it. This happens far too regularly. I mean, it's the mob mentality. And 
it takes bravery and courage to be able to stand up in the midst of a huge mob of angry people to actually be a person of peace. It takes boldness. It takes the willingness to trust in God beyond yourself because it is very easy to get sucked into a room full of gossip, a room full of criticism. One person is criticizing, everyone starts. One team member starts criticizing, everyone starts criticizing. One parent starts criticizing in the PTA meeting, everyone starts criticizing. It takes boldness to be able to say, let's take a step back. But it's so rare to find that. In Nazi Germany, many Christians did not stand up. And we might, uh, and after the, you know, the deportation of the Jews, here's the reason why. Anytime someone did, they were also imprisoned, tortured, most likely killed. Not just them, but their family. And so I ask you this question. If you were in Nazi Germany, you were a Christian, and if you stood up for the Jews and said, this is wrong, would you do it knowing that your wife and husband and children would be carted off to prison, possibly most likely to their death? You might be willing to do it if it was just you. But how about if it was your whole family? Because that's what did happen. So before we're so quick to think, wow, I, why are these German Christians so silent and, and lack so much bravery? We have to look at ourselves. The reason why I know this happens is because it happens in the Bible. The people of Israel grumbled against Moses, every single one of them. You know what? Including Moses' own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, all grumbled against Moses. All of them got sucked into the grumbling and the anger against Moses. So if it happened there, surely it can happen amongst us. It is contagious. You know how else it is contagious? It's contagious in our own families. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We fathers, and this is a, could have given this as a Father's Day message, but we fathers have a very vital role. It's given and designed by the Lord, and it's to lead our families. With great power comes great responsibility, right? as the saying goes. And your responsibility, fathers, with that power of authority is also the power to destroy. And you can destroy your own children. And the way we do it is, according to Ephesians, is to provoke, to incite anger. If you have a child who is struggling with anger, and if you see that child really angry quite often, fathers, you have to first look at yourself. You have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, do you struggle with anger? Are you a person who is a person of peace or are you a person who just simply promotes anger and you don't even realize it? Or maybe you do and you don't realize how often it just permeates through the home. That as soon as you walk in to the house, there's tension automatically and everyone in the household orbits around you and your needs and your concerns you're tired, you've had a long day at work, you've been struggling. And so if anyone gets out of line, there's going to be a price to pay. If that's, or if there's even a sense of moodiness, you know, without even considering others, if there's self-centeredness, all of that is provoking and inciting anger. And so 
Again, every person is responsible for themselves. So that child is a sinner to themselves. They have that. But plus, they have a father who is angry and inciting and provoking anger in that child as well. So we have to look at ourselves. We have to realize it starts with me. We're just, we're very, very vital to, according to what the Lord says here, the design of the family and how we are to be a person of peace. Even though sometimes we have to discipline, sometimes we have to show that there are rules, but it's always graciously. It's always keeping our anger at bay and in check. So recognize these characteristics that are such a part of anger. The last way in which we battle and overcome and find hope in anger is the most important. Admit you are angry at God. All sinful anger is anger against God ultimately. And until we admit that we're angry at God, we won't be able to battle the anger against others and even perhaps ourselves. David, even though he committed adultery and murder, against other people. In Psalm 51, he says, you and you only have I sinned against. Obviously, David knew that he sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah. But what he realized is that sin is ultimately against God first. And because of that ultimate sin, it actually is what unleashed these terrible sins against other people. And until he dealt with this relationship with God and himself and what was going on there, he would never be able to overcome the sins of other, with others. If anger is taking matters into your own hands, whether it's cold silence or a punch of, of the wall or vile words or a, you know, a, a quick grab of the arm of somebody, um, and all these things that are just spewing forth, then that anger is ultimate resistance against God and his will for us. Notice when you are angry, that's when we're most resistant to God's word. We don't want to hear from God at all. When someone shares God's word with you, maybe says a word of scripture to you when you're angry, isn't that the time where you're, you just say, I don't want to hear that at all. I don't want to even think about that. You know, I really like the movie um, Nacho Libre. I don't really talk about movies that much, but there's that one scene where he says, get that out of my face. And I feel like sometimes... When we're angry and someone presents God's word to us to sort of speak into our lives, we have that get that out of my face mentality. And that, that really is what we need to hear. Just refuse to hear it. We don't want to hear from the Lord words like, can you be merciful? Can you be compassionate? Can you be forgiving, kind? Because ultimately, we're not angry at others. We're angry at God. That's why we don't want to hear God's word. That's, that's the furthest thing. We'd rather have someone screaming at us than sharing God's word with us when we're angry. So what would God do with our anger against him? What does he do against us? Does he cast us all to hell? You know what God does? According to Romans 5.10, we were all his enemies. But I think Tim Keller rightly observes this. He says, when he got within our clutches, we took hold of him. We took him to the cross and we mocked him. You say you're a king. You're going to be our king. We mocked him. We beat him. We tortured him. We reviled him. And he did not revile again. 
What was he doing? See, we were angry at God. God didn't withdraw. He didn't come in guns blazing. He went to the cross. And on the cross, he told us the truth and absorbed our disordered rage without paying back. He didn't just take our undeserved anger. He also took the anger we deserved. And that last line is so important. He didn't take just our undeserved anger. In other words, when I'm angry at someone, he didn't, I, I, my anger is why Jesus died. He took that anger that Jesus didn't deserve that anger. And yet he took that anger upon himself. But he also took the anger we did deserve, which is God's anger against us, a righteous, holy anger against sin and sinners. We were, as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He didn't just take our the many times we've been angry in our lives and bear it on his shoulders, Jesus did on that cross. But God was angry with us as sinners. And we have failed God miserably but we don't pay the penalty of that. Jesus paid the penalty of that on the cross as well. So it's sort of a double weight on Christ. Our anger and God's anger. All of that poured out on Christ at the cross. And when that happened, it's to show us that we can be free because Jesus took our punishment. He paid the price. And so when I am angry at someone, I always have to go back and remember, do I have a right to be? Oh yeah, Jesus took my anger. And he also took God's righteous anger against me and he bore that. So how then can I continue on being embittered towards this person? I would be the most hypocritical person ever to say, oh, I'm not gonna forgive them or I'm gonna be angry. I'm gonna lash out. I'm gonna... That power of remembering what Christ has done, the reality of what Christ has done is what's going to save me. It's going to empower me to overcome anger. So when I go to my room after being so angry with somebody and then go to my room and say, Lord, help me to see. And then I see, oh yeah, he he gave his life for me. He took my anger. He took God's anger against me righteously and he bore the, how can I be angry at this person? That doesn't make sense. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to fight for reconciliation. I'm going to battle sin. That reality, that historic reality is what empowers me to fight. When you have this, you have freedom. You're sanctified by the Spirit. He encourages you. He draws you near to himself, and he he frees you. There's more joy. God doesn't do this because he hates you. He loves you deeply. He wants you to experience freedom and joy throughout your life. But we have to go back again and again and remember, he didn't just take our undeserved anger. He also took the anger we deserved. That's our God. And he did this at the cross. Let's pray together as we come to the table. Father, for those of us who are struggling with anger, which is all of us, we acknowledge that there is no way that by our willpower, or by strategies, we're gonna overcome our anger. It's just not possible. We've tried that, fails us every time because we keep on doing it again and again. 
it took something far more powerful than willpower or a change of circumstances or a 10-step program. It takes the, it took the blood shed, it took a sacrifice. It took your mercy and kindness through your son, Jesus. We come today to this table, O oh Lord, recognizing that you are our only hope, that we have in Christ Jesus the freedom to overcome sin because you were uh, crucified, you bore our burdens on a tree, you bore the curse of sin and the wrath of God forever and ever so that we don't have to live this life in that way. We thank you for that cross, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.